Welcome to Illumin America, a podcast created by the U.S. Baha'i Office of Public Affairs. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We've had a bit of a break, so I'm happy our first episode back is with such a great guest. Today, we'll be talking to Amanda Ripley, a writer for The Atlantic and the author of many great books, including her latest, High Conflict, which details how people get themselves into damaging and polarizing conflict and how they can get themselves out. We got to a lot of places in this conversation, but here are a few themes that popped out. What makes unhealthy conflict explode? How is our media system culpable in promoting high conflict? Why does our media sometimes flatten our very dynamic world in service of telling a story? And what are the limits of us versus them thinking in solving social problems? Let's dive right in. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. We know each other a little bit. I know you as one of the more thoughtful journalists and writers working right now, and I hope you'll accept that bit of praise. And uh, you know me as a Baha'i, and Baha'is tend to think a little bit differently about conflict than some other people or groups. And I bring up conflict because I know that it's a theme with which your work has been deeply concerned over the last few years. As you probably know, I think we've talked about it before, Baha'is believe that conflict and contention are to be categorically avoided, while at the same time, we believe that it is only through the clash of different opinions that real truth can be arrived at. And our method for thinking about truth, our method for bridging these two poles, in a sense, is a principle that we call consultation, which is a standard or means of engaging with others that holds that we must be both frank and loving in our conversation with each other. And I think this is an idea that has intuitive resonance for a lot of people, but in today's America, this idea is getting harder to understand. It's getting harder to understand how principles of frankness and of, of being loving are, are not dichotomous, um, how we can come together and, and overcome conflict. And your work really interests and inspires me because I think it engages with some of these deeper dynamics about what conflict means, where conflict can become dangerous, and how to navigate through differences of opinion. So after this brief introduction to where I'm coming from, Amanda, would you mind introducing yourself and, and your work? My name is Amanda Ripley, and I write about conflict and other things, mostly for the Atlantic, but also for other places. And I write books about human behavior and the gap between human behavior and policy. Usually the books I write are my own desperate attempt to work through some kind of quagmire that my reporting has led me to. So the, as you mentioned, conflict is the latest <laughs> quagmire. And with respect to that quagmire, your work draws a distinction between high conflict and regular conflict. Could you elaborate on this distinction and tell me why you found it to be a helpful one? So what I found is there's a certain point at which regular conflict can become high conflict. And that's when it's usually an us versus them kind of situation where things become really clear, like mm -hmm. too clear, so that the regular rules of engagement don't work anymore. And that is true when it comes to journalism about conflict or interpersonal relationships. So all of our normal psychological biases get exaggerated. We stop seeing opportunities that exist and tend to feel just totally mystified by the insanity of the other side or the other person, right? And, and it's a different set of forces and dynamics than what I call good conflict, which is the kind of conflict where there's still frustration and anger there's more movement, if that makes sense. Like you're able to move from frustration to understanding, to curiosity, back to frustration, <laughs> over to humor, back to anger. And you, I think we've all felt that, right? Like if yeah. you're 
in those beautiful moments where you're engaged in good conflict, maybe it's at a staff meeting or with your spouse or friend, where you feel like you're genuinely trying to understand what they're saying, mm -hmm. even as you totally disagree, right? Um, that's an amazing thing. That, that feeling of being stretched, but not giving in, right? Not surrendering what you hold dear. So that's good conflict versus high conflict, at least in my understanding of it. Amanda, what got you interested in writing about conflict? Because you, you're saying that through your work, you explore things that compel you in a certain sense. And I know you worked on, on education before and other sort of issues, I think, that continue to you know, provoke your imagination and curiosity. But what was it about conflict that drew you to it and wanted to understand it better? I mean, I hate to be so predictable, but after the 2016 election, I really felt like, whoa, I did not understand the country I was living in and writing about well enough to do my job, that there, there were just things I, I couldn't understand how Democrats and Republicans were seeing the world so differently. People that I respected and cared about and could engage with on many things, I couldn't engage with on this. Like we were seeing the world so differently and it just felt like malpractice to keep doing journalism the way we'd always done it, you know, to just keep and, and that seems like what a lot of places were doing. After the 2016 election, they were just doubling down. Like a lot of the print media places that I had read and admired for my whole life, they were just more convicted than ever about their role. But it just felt like that isn't going to work, right? Because half the country doesn't believe you tell the truth. Anyway, this sent me on a whole spiral of trying to understand what I was missing, which eventually led me to people who study conflict and who work in conflict differently. And what were some of the, the central insights that you, uh, you gleaned from this period of learning and exploration? Yeah, I mean, I think the key lesson I learned from talking to people who have been through really toxic conflicts and come to a healthier kind of conflict is, first of all, that it's possible, right, to make that shift. And there's a pattern to it, whether it's political conflict or gang conflict or family conflict. It's the same dynamics that pull you in. Conflict is super magnetic, right? And the same kind of patterns that help people get out to a healthier kind of conflict. And then, you know, ideally what you want is to build a conflict resilience in your community or your office or your neighborhood or your faith organization, whatever, because conflict is necessary and inevitable, right? So you need to have, like the Baha'is have tried to do, practices, right, in place to manage through conflict so that it's catalytic and constructive. You want to avoid high conflict ever, but if you do get in it, you can get out. So one of the mysteries of conflict is like, what makes it explode? You know, what are the conditions necessary to turn intense conflict into violent, endemic, all-consuming conflict? And one of the, I mean, there's lots of conditions, but there's four that I think are particularly important. And one of them is this idea of conflict profiteers or conflict entrepreneurs. These are people or platforms who exploit conflict for their own ends. Sometimes it's for profit. Sometimes it's for power. Sometimes it's for often, maybe most often, it's for the sense of belonging and status that it can bring. So you think about pundits or politicians who really play on division and cultivate it and keep the fire going. The flame can never go out, right? 
those are conflict entrepreneurs. And we all have them in, in everyday life too, right? If you think about someone you've worked with in the past who was really quick to sort of come in and close the door and like gossip and whisper and, you know, insinuate. And that's how they co connected and built intimacy with you, right? I'm not saying that I'm not never been guilty of this, by the way, but that's exploiting conflict to connect with someone else, right? And that's a form of conflict entrepreneurialism. And it, for me, at least, it's been important to name it because then you can start to see it and then you can decide if you want to distance yourself from conflict entrepreneurs, whether they're on TV or on your Twitter feed or in your, in your neighborhood, whatever, which can be really hard to do because the, the best conflict entrepreneurs make themselves essential. Like they're very charismatic. But it's important at least like, identify it and recognize when it's happening. Why, why does that draw us in? You know, why, why, <laughs> why is that cheap shot so attractive? Because I recognize that of myself too. And you know, you, you see certain things and I don't know how to describe it exactly. Maybe it's a certain drama to it that's intriguing or enticing. I don't know. What do you think? Why, why does that attract us? There's an old kind of myth in journalism that you need conflict for any great story, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's some truth to that, that there's drama, there's emotion that gets provoked when you do that. But I actually think something that gives me hope is that increasingly, as there's so much conflict in the news, it's a way to stand out is to disrupt that. Like, in other words, I just don't think people are quite as engaged and intrigued by stories that confirm their worst fears. Like there are some people who are, right? Like highly activated, politically engaged readers. They are definitely going to keep clicking on that stuff. But, but the great majority of Americans are exhausted by it. One word that's kind of been in a few of the sentences we've been saying is story. And I wonder how much of this too is, is just rooted in, in a sense of like narrative expectations about how the world should look and then trying to filter the world through that lens and, and, and make it make it fit. Because any kind of story or fairy tale, any kind of way of narrativizing through which we understand the world tends to center around some kind of conflict as well. But we know that life is actually much more banal than that a lot of the time. When I go through my daily life, it's not that interesting for the most part, you know? <laughs> I wake up, I have breakfast, I sit at my computer, I do my work, you know? It's, it's very rare that I, I find myself in that sort of high intensity, highly charged scenario that we often find so represented um, mm. by our news media and by the way that we engage with things too. Like, I don't know if you've ever found yourself describing a situation where you're in and may maybe putting a little more mustard on it than, than it, you know, actually <laughs> was, Absolutely. You know, which is a situation in which I found myself too, you know? And I, I wonder if this, if this relates somewhat to the way journalism is sort of implicated in this and the way we've talked about as like stewards of story and, and national narrative, whether that pull is, is so strong that it tends to shape things that may not be as, as, as uh, intractable and highly charged in reality, but, you know, they get filtered through this narrative process that mutates them. Totally. And I think one way, one, I mean, there's a million ways this plays out, right? But one way it plays out is in political journalism. Like I remember when I first moved to DC from New York, I'd been, I'd been in DC, I went to New York, came back and I was working at Time Magazine and I had the first sort of meeting I went to, weekly story meeting at the bureau there. So these are people who cover politics and the Pentagon and Congress, whatever. And really, you know, really good, smart, hardworking journalists. But like, every conversation, like every idea, right away I noticed like every idea was seen as with an adversarial lens. There was this assumption that anything a member of Congress was doing 
had a sort of strategy, like a political calculus behind it, that it was never actually about the policy that the law was supposed to be about. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's tricky because I'm sure that some percentage of the time that's true. Right. I mean, this is the system we build. It's an adversarial system. These members of Congress are constantly fundraising and running for office. So, of course, they're going to be strategic right, and, and calculated and cynical in many ways. But it was striking to me as an outsider who didn't write about politics very often, like how deeply cynical that was, right? To just take nothing at face value and just assume everything was a strategy. And it fails us lots of times, and particularly with Trump, because how many times did I read or listen to journalists earnestly trying to make sense of his behavior as if it was a political strategy? I wonder why he is pandering to dictators like does he think that if he does that and i'm like guys <laughs> this isn't going to fit into your normal you know narrative of how politics works you know it's not a house of cards episode you right know? right right yeah uh, this is a psychological story more than anything else but it's not something that most political reporters were equipped to I mean they didn't start calling psychologists you know like they <laughs> they didn't they kept calling you know a foreign policy expert at georgetown or whatever and right. it's like so inadequate uh, not to say that trump never had strategy he certainly does he did but that's not all that's going on here, right? Like, and to just assume that, that this is all part of some grand strategy is to miss the story and be super unhelpful to the reader. In the world that we represent through journalism and through writing, and this is, relates to something that you, you said just before, we tend to ascribe single motivations for actions and, and the things that people do. And I find that so curious because I think if we examine our inner world and our inner life, how often is it that we do or say something because of one thing that happened, you know? <laughs> so true. Like, is there like a single chain of causality ever in our, in our actions? You know, maybe at very rare times, moments of real clarity, you know, where something happens and we respond for one reason. But if I think about hmm. the things that I've done in my life, and the way that I move throughout the world, I'm in a very complex web of relationships and causality with the world around me, you know? Yeah. It's, it's rarely that something just happens and I respond to that. Again, why, why, do, we, why do we flatten the world in this way, Amanda? What makes it yeah, so attractive? That, that's such a good point. I love that. And it, to apply that to the political example, from the people I know who've worked in Congress as staffers or whatever, my sense is that it's many motivations, just like you said, all at once, intertwined almost in ways that are hard to separate. So if I introduce a bill in Congress to do something, there are political motivations. There are moral motivations, like I feel like it's the right thing to do. There are practical, you know, sort of utilitarian motivations. It might get me, you know, attention from this interest group or another, right? So it, you're right. It's not just one thing. And why do we flatten it? I love uh, Tina Rosenberg, who co-founded the Solutions Journalism Network and writes an occasional column for the New York Times. She did this great piece maybe a year ago about how, how interesting it was that TV fictionalized TV shows are now portraying human beings as vastly more complex, multidimensional individuals than the news hmm. is portraying real people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's some kind of convention in journalism that does flatten things out and does kind of assume that the audience can't handle too much complexity. Mm -hmm. Whereas at the very same time, we're seeing this golden age of TV where there's a lot of complexity, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the, these shows have these characters who are definitely not just one thing or another. And 
that wasn't true in the 80s, but it's like weird that nonfiction journalism <laughs> should look more like a sitcom in the 80s at right. this point than, <laughs> than <laughs> fictionalized serials. And how do we stop relying on those conventions in a, in a systematic way? Yeah, and I, I wanted to, to touch on that a little bit, you know, because it's, it's clear that media and it's particularly mainstream media outlets have been quite complicit in upholding high conflict and shepherding it some of some of it through into, into the wider public discourse. But I wanted to ask you, have you seen examples, and they can be not just from mainstream media, but from any sort of corners of how media outlets can help get us out? Because I know that this is, uh, you've articulated this almost as an aspiration for media to help move the public through high conflict and mediate it in a certain sense. And I know that you've learned a lot from conflict mediators in that regard. Have you found examples of journalists doing the work that you'd like to see? Absolutely. I mean, I think there are pockets of deep innovation on this stuff right now that wasn't maybe true five or 10 years ago. So that's exciting. Most of it, I think, is happening more on the local level. So in, in some ways, the least innovative places are the most well-funded, which is sort of, maybe that's how that goes. And so, right? I mean, part of the reason there's innovation happening at the local level in, in the news media is because they have no choice, mm -hmm. right? Like they have to change. Whereas the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, they're going to keep Fox, right? They're going to keep, their, their business model is working for them mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. as it is. But there are places that have really, you know, Harkin, a company we both, I think, have learned from, mm -hmm. is, a, is a place that helps newsrooms and other organizations do a better job listening to its audience in ways that I think really kind of brilliantly provoke curiosity. Because when you, when you turn over some control of a newsroom to the audience, it's a little scary. And that's what Harkin and other places are helping newsrooms do is to say, hey, we're going to stop telling you from up on high what the news is. And we're going to start asking you what you care about, what you want us to help you understand better. But you have to do it in such a way that does provoke curiosity and humility. And, and Harkin is good at that. There's you know, other organizations like that. There's even some local TV news stations that are doing really cool things. And the reason they're doing it, honestly, is because they get more viewers. This is what's really interesting is like, it's not just pie in the sky, like what they're finding, and we talked about this a little bit before, is there's this fatigue, this a news burnout at this point, right? Like people are so just exhausted by the constant bad news, the conflict. So when you give people something different, they watch and they watch it to the end. So they'll watch seven minutes, which in local TV news is an eternity, right? Yeah. Uh, the average story is a minute and a half. So they'll watch these longer stories, you know, these more complicated stories. There's a Denver TV station that I've been reporting a, a little bit about recently that does this thing where they try to look at a, a sort of controversy in Denver from many different points of view. And it's done great for them. Like it's a huge franchise, you know, and it and it's like nobody would have thought that would have worked because it's the opposite of clickbait. Right, right. Which is the sort of predominant or not. Maybe that's not fair to say, but a, a significant business strategy, you know, for a yeah, lot of money yeah. news media. And I guess I'm not sure it's true anymore. Like, I think there's this assumption that if it bleeds, it leads, et cetera, et cetera. But that's like, that's may not be as true anymore as we thought. Mm -hmm. And I, and I do hope that's true. What, what you've just said and talking about Harkin, which is run by our friend, uh, Jennifer Brentel, cultivating that, that curiosity and maybe moving towards a desire to understand seems at once at odds with 
the like current program of, of news media, but such such a natural thing for it to aspire toward. And it made me think of this quote from a Baha'i text or a letter from the Universal House of Justice, which is the central governing body of the Baha'i faith, where they write that the perpetuation of ignorance is a most grievous form of oppression. So ignorance is, is and to perpetuate it, you know, is a form of oppression, but to, but to cultivate understanding, to cultivate that sort of curiosity seems like such a, a noble goal mm-hmm. for, uh, for the media to pursue. If, if it can become more widespread, I think that would be that would be incredible. And I wanted to switch gears just a little bit here. In a lot of your written work, you present sort of like a hopeful view of how we as Americans and we as a society can transcend conflict. And you talk about, you know, there's two poles of the most polarized people who are often represented in, in our public imagination and our public discourse. But you have a, a sense that the vast majority of us lie in between those two extreme poles or, or sets of extreme poles, you know. Maybe it's no longer only bifurcated, but you know what I mean. Would you say that you know this is true, that the majority of us are not radicalized? And the other question I have is, as this sort of perpetuation of this narrative of, of polarized people continues to assert itself in the public imagination, does that group of people who are moderate, reasonable, willing to hear from other people, does it shrink? Mm-hmm. Does it have this, this effect of drawing more and more people out toward the fringes? So in that sense, are we running out of time? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I think two things happen. One is, so the people who've done the best research on this, I think, is an organization called More in Common, which is the organization that came up with that label, the exhausted majority, and looking at American adults and seeing that, yeah, there's really these extremists on the tails, on the left and the right, who are really disproportionately represented in the news media and certainly on Twitter, right, which is totally unrepresentative of the country. And yet journalists are constantly on Twitter. So that right there is distorting our our perception. So yeah, you have these tales. And then what most of us do in really unpleasant conflict, I mean, what do you, most of the time, what do you do when you're encounter, you're suddenly exposed to a conflict like that? Fight or flight. (laughs) Yeah. You try to get the hell out of there, right? Like most of us avoid unpleasant conflict. Yeah. And so that's what happens as it gets worse is most of us go to avoidance. We tune out on the news. We may or may not vote. We don't talk about it with our neighbors and friends. We try to really just keep some boundaries and stay out of it. That's totally understandable. And the net effect is that the extremists take over. So when everyone else kind of flees the scene, you leave it to the extremists. And that's one problem. And then the other problem that you mentioned is that those extremists, as they get louder and louder and more compelling, get more airtime, get recruits, Mm. potentially, right? So they get bigger. Now, I still think that they're a minority, right? Like, so there's still, we're talking like 15% of the country is super politically engaged and inflexible. But I think part of the challenge is we don't even have the words, really. And maybe you can help me come up. You're good at words. Like, maybe you can, maybe there are the words and I just haven't found them. But what I'm interested in increasingly are politicians and voters who are not necessarily centrist on policy, but they're not conflict entrepreneurs, right? Like they're not divisive and us versus them and their thinking and adversarial on every topic. What is that, right? Like that's not moderate necessarily. You can have some pretty, you know, radical policy ideas and be the kind of person who describes us as everyone. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so true. And it it dovetails beautifully into another question that that I had and, and something that I just want to talk about with you further 
I think there would be a really easy way to misread your work and quite carelessly, I would say, mischaracterize it. And ironically, an idea on how to mitigate conflict might be very controversial and conflict-oriented because people might see a conversation like this about trying to mitigate high conflict and, and transcend it and transform it as a sort of like ineffectual or dangerous sensualism. Just like you've said, just sort of this empty, bland rhetoric of we all need to come together and ultimately we do nothing, you know, right. or we advance, you know, only the most bland and uninspiring and unhelpful of policies and thoughts and ideas. But I think you're quite right that this is not what we're trying to describe right now. And it's not what your work is getting at. There's, there can still be a very defined sense of an idea that one wants to advance without seeing those who are not on board or those who oppose it as a irascible enemy. Yeah, right. But that idea is becoming more and more rare. And those two elements that I think are actually quite good friends with each other are becoming seen as dichotomous. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why, like, you know how there's these rankings of politicians, you know, that media outlets do, like, to look at their voting records, and are they on the left, are they on the right? I think it'd be great to do a ranking. It's like a fantasy that I have, one of many, um, like a ranking of politicians on this metric. I don't know if maybe it would require doing a sentiment analysis of their speeches and their tweets and whatever, to look at, like, who who is using the kind of rhetoric that feeds into our worst instincts, right, mm -hmm. as humans, that dehumanizes and vilifies people we, dis we disagree with, and who is not, but still disagreeing. Like, maybe that's not possible, but I think it, I think it could be. And I think if you want to change something, you have to name it and you have to measure it. And we can't even do that yet. So, so you're right. It often gets confused for an argument for moderation or centrism. And that's that's not what it is. And that's not what Americans want. So the same more uncommon research clearly found that there's a majority of Americans who want significant change, like dramatic change from a policy point of view, but don't want it to keep being this burn the house down, us versus them. Right. Yeah. I think it works against something that's, that's sort of intuitive to us, which is that we like our neighbors. We have good people around us. You know, we may disagree with them, but there's something to it, you know, and I think as, as a Baha'i, like I would describe that as the principle of the oneness of humankind, right. you know, and there's a way to, it should be obligatory to, to distinguish that from the type of feckless, moderate, centrist right, sort of right. thing. Like, I think it's actually quite a radical principle in a way of trying to totally break down that sense of, of us versus them and see that the, the destiny of, of each human being is, is inextricably bound up in, in that of the other to the point where it just doesn't make sense to think of people as others. Right. And so how do we navigate through very difficult disagreements and policy outcomes that we want that are different from each other? We don't know the answer to that. We need to learn so much more about it. But... I, I do think we need to equip ourselves with that understanding because I think it's becoming more and more clear as, as the world continues to open up. Like, I think mm -hmm. this is another issue, actually, is that the United States is quite parochial about its conflict mm -hmm. and very centered on its own, its own issues and problems as though it's the first time that any of these problems have ever existed in the history of, of the world. And that's, that's another problem with a lot of different points to it. But all, the, all this to say, it seems increasingly self-evident that if we don't overcome this tendency to other one another, mm -hmm. there won't be much left to advance. No, I, I mean, I, I think for anyone who hasn't read it, Michael Carlberg's book, Beyond the Culture of Contest, really does a beautiful job, right? And in, in mm -hmm. not that many pages, 
conveying this idea that you've articulated and the really limits of adversarial systems. Like we've reached the upper limits of adversarial us versus them systems and design. And so, and we can see that right nowhere more obviously than the pandemic, but you also see it in climate change. But with the pandemic, it's like, we cannot fix this using the blunt instruments of us versus them systems or journalism or politics. We, it's so obvious, right? We just can't do it. Like it can't be done because we're all, connect, we're literally all connected all over the world. So, so yeah, the problems we face as a civilization cannot be solved this way. Yeah, I really I found that book to be incredibly helpful, again, in, in sort of naming it. Yeah, Michael's work is just wonderful. And I think one of the things that he also identifies in this work, and I think this it goes back to what we're sort of describing, is that traditionally people have seen conflict, or maybe to use your terminology, like high conflict, as the central and maybe sole engine of social change. And I believe that's partially why people are so attached to it. You know, and mm -hmm. you hear the sentiment expressed at, at a level that it's almost like a meme where, mm -hmm. you know, nothing has ever changed without having some sort of overthrow, having some kind of contention or, or high conflict. Nothing has ever changed without these instruments. And firstly, I'm not sure that that's true. I think, again, we tend to remember those incidents where that has happened uh, to the exclusion of other more profound instances of cooperation that have actually been maybe more of the central engine of humanities like progress and, and evolution. But I, I think that's partially why that, that modality of relating to one another is so present, because we just believe that society won't change without those things. Yeah, right. Even though we know from the research of Karen Chenoweth and other people that nonviolent movements are twice as more effective than violent movements, right? So again and again and again, we can see that major social change is accomplished. Yes, there has to be pressure. Yeah, for sure. But it's going to be much more lasting and effective if you're coming at it from many different angles. So it's not, it's not going to be solved just through pressure. It has to come in the hearts of people. Right. right. Yeah. There has to be like a creative or constructive vision that's articulated as yeah. well. Amanda Ripley, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, James. I always enjoy talking to you. Likewise. <laughs>